0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziegler Podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. So James chapter one, as we enter into the text, we we find ourselves in an ancient Roman city. The main road or the cardoid. Uh, is lined with with tables, with vendors. Dried fruit and cheeses hang from canopies on the sides, and and there's tables with jars of honey that invite the sweet tooth to swing by. Shoppers, they step over the, the deep grooves that are worn into the cobblestone streets made from chariot wheels, and the shoppers bounce from one side of the street to the other, grabbing ingredients for tonight's dinner. It's the perfect place to people watch. Most of most of the elderly, they walk away from the vendors with very little, you know, a handful of legumes and maybe a piece of fruit. The moms, they stuff their bags with proteins, you know, finding the cheapest deals to, to fill all of the little mouths in their home. The wealthy here, they stand out. They literally glimmer in the sun as they walk down the main road. Multiple rings on each of their fingers. The more rings, the, the, the more wealth. Their robes glow purple in the sun, Fancy embroidering seems to crawl all over their robe. It's a symbol of wealth. Vendors selling their food, they interrupt their conversation with a commoner to help the wealthy find the best of their fruits and and vegetables in hopes to gain a loyal big spender in the future. It's just business. It's how the economy works. But the little church down the street, some of what happens in this marketplace is beginning to creep into the church down the street, the partiality. And on this day, a messenger makes his way through the crowded streets with, with a message. And he delivers this letter to the church. It's from a guy named James. And he writes this. He writes, religion that is pure and undefiled. Let me just boil this down. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unsane from the world. Now he's going to, James is actually going to unpack this more later on. Keep yourself unsane from the world. So we're going to focus in on the first part of this verse. Pure religion before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows. So, religion is not empty rituals. Religion is not an extensive theological vocabulary. Religion is not these formal big prayers. It's doing something for someone who could never repay you. And he uses orphans and widows as an example, two of the most vulnerable in the society. Something we have to understand is in the ancient um, empire of Rome, there weren't as much, there were social programs, but not nearly as much as we have today. Men were the providers. If you didn't have a man, whether it was a husband or a dad, you're scraping at best. And so many would have to turn to prostitution or, or to begging. And they were considered the outcasts. They couldn't do anything for anyone because they could barely do anything for themselves. And so James writes, pure religion is pursuing the orphans and the widows in their affliction. And what's so cool about this verse is this verse became the marching order for the church. Like today, we have orphanages and we have hospitals and we have schools because the church took this verse very seriously. When James wrote this, there was a very common practice in the Roman empires and other empires as well, but it was very common in Rome. It was a, it was a form of abortion um, called exposure. And essentially, uh, if a baby was born and it was disfigured or it had a disability or it was the wrong gender or it was just simply unwanted, the family had the right uh, under law to leave that baby in the wilderness somewhere and expose the baby to the elements, let nature take its course. Usually an animal attack would come and eat the baby. Uh, This was the right of every family. It was the church that saw this as pure evil and they would step in. The church has historically been pro-life. They would step in. They would either witness a family going out to the wilderness, or you know, they would hear about something like that, and they would walk out, and they would take the baby, and they would raise it, because that's what it meant to be a Jesus follower, pro-life, to care for the most vulnerable. And society, in its own depravity, began to attack the church for this pro-life stance. This is where a lot of church persecution started, because rumors were flying around in the society that the church was full of cannibals. Why are they picking up all these babies? I bet they're eating them. Because you know, when they have communion, they say, this is my body broken for you. They're probably breaking baby bodies. for eating babies. Like this was like a rumor that was flying around throughout the empire. The church was severely attacked for its pro-life stance. But what I love about the early church is they just didn't care. They kept taking children in. And so what ended up happening is families in the church started to really grow. You'd be sitting in church and you'd have a family in a row with a couple biological kids, but then filling a row with adopted kids many of them with disabilities. And so the churches started looking around going, our homes can't fit all these kids. Why don't we like pool our resources together and build a facility and share in the housing and the feeding and the providing? We'll just be one big family. And the first orphanages were established. This is pure religion to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It's a beautiful part of our church family history. So I thought there's a whole narrative out flying out around there that the church only cares for the unborn, not the already born. It's a very ridiculous statement on many levels. It's a horrible way to debate. And historically, it's extremely inaccurate. The church took this very, very seriously. And not just with kids. Similar things began happening with the sick and the elderly, you know, laying in the streets or, or stuck in homes, shut-ins, and nobody would, was taking care of them. So the church jumped in and started housing and, and visiting. You know, and then they thought, well, maybe we should build a facility. We, our, our homes can't take in any more sick people. Nursing homes were, were then born. This little verse drove the church to make these huge sacrifices, sacrifices that are, are still seen today. But it wasn't always the case, because look what James writes in verse 1 of chapter 2. So we're going to see verse 27 connect to to all of this in just a second. But verse 1, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, well, you sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, Well, you stand over there, sit at my feet, So some people were treating the church like the marketplace, right? If you're a vendor, you want to make a good sale, you're scanning the crowd for purple clothing because you want the bigger spenders coming to your table. When they come closer, you stop your conversation with a non-purple to talk with the purple. Similar things were happening in the church. In fact, uh, some synagogues, which many churches were born out of, um, you bought your seat. It was like like a sports game. Can you imagine doing that in church? You had to buy your seat in here you ever have to sit in the nosebleed section that's my section those are my people there <laughs> one one time somebody a friend gifted me courtside tickets to a basketball game and i was on the i was on the actual hardwood floor like nobody was in front of me and there was even a butler right there i was so out of my el- i didn't know this stuff existed i felt like such big stuff you know, I had to come in in the first level and I'm walking past all the first level seats, which already are not my people. And I'm going, oh, excuse me, peasants. You know, My seat is down on the court, uh, right next to the butler, which is my butler. I, I don't know how much that ticket was worth. It had to be big money. I'm usually too cheap for the nosebleed section. I'll just watch it on TV. But many churches or many places of worship were operating this way. You buy your seat. In fact, some, some operate this way still. The further you sit toward the front, the more money that you give. So when you come into church, you can see who gives what because the bigger spenders sit more toward the front. And James is saying this just can't happen. Now we can look at that and we can think, okay, this is back then, right? This isn't really relevant to us today. But the reality is this is so relevant to us today because it is so ingrained in our sin nature to treat wealthier people or people who can do something for us far better than those who can't do anything for us. This is so ingrained in us. It's like the time, um, this has happened a few times, but once in a while I'll be invited to speak at like a conference uh, or, or a church or something like that. And there's this one time I was invited to speak at a conference and they told me to come at a certain time. And so I showed up at that time to be like mic check or whatever. And I walk in and, and you know, nobody's there. They're, they're setting up for this conference. And I walk in and one of the staff comes by and, and they're very, very rude to me. And, and they're like, what are you doing here? It's like, oh, I was told to be here uh, at like this time and, and uh, still be early. And they're like, well, the, this, is, I don't, this, this conference is going to start for like another hour. I think you missed what you were supposed to be. Are you looking for assistance? And they started talking to me about the food pantry that they had <laughs> earlier on in the day. I'm, I'm not making this up. And, and very, very, very rude to me, you know, and, and just treating me kind of like garbage until somebody came up and said, hey, no, that's our speaker for tonight. And then all of a sudden, her tune just completely changed. Like, oh, I, I want to get your book. It's it like, okay, don't even. Like, I already know your heart, okay? We're, we're, we're done here. But this is, this is how we tend to operate. If you can do something for me, I'm going to treat you a little better versus if I know you can do nothing for me. And this is exactly what, what James is attacking here. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Making distinctions. So what's happening in this church is what happens in churches so much today is they're grouping up into cliques based on distinctions that they've decided to run with. So you have a church which is going, okay, this social class over here, that social class over there. If that's your style, those are your people. If that's your style, you know, those are your people. You know, so the suburban, organic soccer moms, you guys can be a group, and the young professionals, you guys can be a group, and the Section 8 housing, why don't you guys be a group together? No meshing or colliding at all. And James calls this, that's totally evil. It might be unintended because this is our natural thing that we do, but it is evil. And what James is doing here is he's casting vision for the church the pagan temples are divided up, the marketplace is divided up with partiality, society functions by grouping and cliques, the church is to stand out and to be very different. There is no division when you come into the church. It's a family. And families don't do this. Like none of your families at Thanksgiving organize the the dinner table based on who makes what, right? Like, oh, you make that, sit next to dad. Oh, you make that, why don't you sit down at the end of the table? Like if that's your family, you have terrible parents. And we have counseling, and we can offer you counseling. Our world functions that way, but families don't. And churches are families, and we shouldn't. But we must consciously work against our natural bent. People are to walk into church and be fascinated by the meshing of different people. Ah, this elderly poor man is is finding community with this young professional. And the struggling, burned-out single mom is breaking bread with the Lululemon mom. All these different classes in the marketplace... But when you walk into church, it's just very, very different. It's this beautiful collision. And it's extremely odd, but equally fascinating. And so James continues, verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, is not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? He's not calling rich people like evil in context. Really, what he's saying is like, a lot of these churches, like, you guys, you honor the rich man, but the reality is they're the ones dragging you to court. It's so deeply ingrained in us to treat the wealthier differently. James points out they're not treating you with much favoritism. Like, our obsession over the wealthy, it just looks pathetic. He continues on in verse 8 If you really fulfill the law, the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Then look at verse 9 But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then he continues on the next few verses. He says, This is God's law. This isn't like James's opinion. This isn't fun time with Mr. Rogers, find somebody you wouldn't necessarily connect with and connect with. He's saying, No, this is God's law. This is serious because it means a lot to God. And the reason is, is that people come in here and they should see and feel and experience something so very different than what they've lived with out there. It's, it's like um a few years ago, I was flying home from uh, Tel Aviv, and I, I had made the mistake the day before. I, I was wandering through Old Jerusalem, and a, Be- a Bedouin guy had asked me if I wanted to come to his house and have some tea. And probably not the smartest, but it sounded like an adventure. was like, yeah, sure. So I just followed this guy to his house and, and his place for tea. super nice guy. We just had fun chatting in his kitchen. But the tea tasted funny. And he even said that. He was like, look at the pies, like, these leaves are like gone bad or something. And I don't know what the tea was or if it had gone bad or what, but whatever it was, it wrecked my stomach. And so now, like a few hours later, I'm boarding a 10 hour flight home and I'm like just preparing the whole time as I'm waiting in line, just puke in the, in the, in the plane bathroom. But to make matters worse, I'm cheap and I got the, uh, the bad seats on the plane. You know, see what I'm talking about, right? The, the middle seat. So I, I got the middle seat, I get to my row, there's two people there, a husband and a wife, and my seat is in the middle. And I sit down, and I'm trying to locate my puke bag. because This is going to be bad. Stomach is churning. 20 minutes into the flight, I kid you not, the husband and the wife, they both fell asleep with their heads on my shoulder. <laughs> Awful. And I didn't have the heart to just, like, wake them up. So, like, 10 hours, my stomach is bubbling. I'm, I'm, I'm nauseous. Middle row. Stranger's head on my shoulders. I'm trying to get my work done on my computer like a T-Rex. You know, flight attendants are walking by, and they don't even see me because I'm covered by, like, heads. And, and so they're not offering me anything. It was, it was a nightmare. This is what James is getting at. How many of you feel like you've been flying in the middle seat your whole life? You've just been overlooked your whole life. Never picked, never pursued by anybody, rarely blessed by somebody, forgotten, passed up, pushed out, and left out your whole life. You should find something different when you walk into the church. And that only happens when we intentionally create that. The problem is, is our bent is to create what we experience in the world, the cliques and the clubs. And sometimes the worst offenders of of this are those who struggled to find community before. And so we come into the church, we find something we longed for. Ah, I get a window seat. You know, we find friends. And since we crave that for so long, we get very protective. You know, close off our group. And we unintentionally create our own cliques. I got my crew, our people, and we all, we all look alike. And James is not stop. We're doing something different. This is where the church stands out. Nowhere do generations mesh so much. Nowhere do generations mentor each other so much, bless each other, pass along values. Nowhere do classes combine so much. Upper class, serving with lower class, uh, learning from each other. Generations, classes, cultures, working together and better for it. It's the church. It's very, very powerful. But our sin nature can get in the way of that. And we create what we see in the world and we lose its power. Now, James is talking to the church, right? So there's a lot of corporate corporate application with this. So we could take this, we go, all right, we're gonna do our groups this way, you know, because we, we wanna facilitate this and this. So there's a lot of corporate application, but it starts in the heart. It starts with us as individuals. So, and it gives us our one lone point today. And that is the people you pursue reveals your heart. The faces, the people, the families that you pursue, it reveals your heart. Who you pursue says a lot about you. Your tribe, the people you most often text, the people you most often post pictures with, the people you most often share a meal with, the people you go out with, it says a lot about your heart. And let me just talk to the introverts for a second because I'm with you, all right? I'm an introvert. I know how this goes. You can be thinking, I don't pursue anybody. I'm an introvert. No, you do. You do. And it's the cool thing to say, like, I don't like people. That's a huge heart problem. The reality is we all pursue people and who we pursue, it reveals our heart. When I was in high school, I had a youth leader. Uh, is actually a married couple and they worked in our youth ministry. And you know, they had good hearts if they worked in our youth ministry. Because when I was a youth pastor, this is just true. If, if leaders got married, they no longer worked with the youth ministry. They're still like, all right, peace out. You know, we're out. This couple didn't. They stuck around. Uh, what's even more cool, though, is though they, they would open up their home and they would have the youth group over and just let the, youth, like us high schoolers, just hang out at their house. They were so good to us. And I wasn't the best to them. Like, this is a little bit of an embarrassing story, but I remember one time we were at their house you know, the whole youth group, and and I was in their kitchen, and I noticed their fridge was full of uh, Christmas cards from their friends. And like a punk high schooler, I was making fun of all their pictures because every couple looked the exact same. Every family, exact same. Like every picture was taken in the fall, which I get, you know. It's a pretty time of year, especially in Wisconsin, which is where we were from. All the couples were white, suburban, preppy, white Every wife in every picture had high boots on with a sweater, usually a cream-colored sweater, with a matching knit hat. Every single one of the wives. And some of them had, like, their Starbucks coffee. I don't know what it was about the drink with getting that in the picture. But, like, some of them had. And the husbands all matched their wives like a bunch of simps. They, 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 They were dressed by their wives. The guys had their collared shirts tucked in, every single one of them. The children all looked like gap kids just threw up all over them. And not that that's bad, like I get it. All right, you want to look your best in pictures. Totally get that. It's just funny because every couple, same thing. Preppy and pretty. Same style, same hairstyle, the works. And so like a punk kid, I'm standing in their kitchen making fun of them. I was like, look at you guys. Your friends all look like you. Your whole fridge is like a bunch of lookalikes. Like, you guys get together and plan this? You know, do you hold tryouts to be your friend? On an attractive scale, you got to be a seven or above to be our friend. I feel bad. I kept going. I was like, I bet I know what you all do for fun. You wives get your Starbucks, flaunt your Starbucks, and peruse vineyard vines together. And your husbands, you all get together and watch college football, reliving the glory days when your wives didn't dress you. Yes. I, was, I was such a punk. And, and the reality is that I was the hypocrite. As much as I wanted to make fun of my youth leaders, I'm the same way. I just gravitate toward a different type of person. I never fit in with a pretty crowd. Look at me. I, I, I like finding guys who make fires and fish and blow things up. Like those are my, it's my people. I, I'm no better than them at all. Like at some level, it's just, it's just natural, right? Birds of a feather flock together. It's just what we do. But what James is saying here, and this is so important, and that is, is that part of your process of sanctification is getting past that. Becoming more than just that one type of friend person. Diversifying our table and our friend list is part of you becoming more like Jesus Christ. But truth be told, we have people we struggle to connect with, don't we? I think you do. Maybe even look at me like I struggle to connect with you. And I totally get it. There are people that I struggle to connect with. Why is James making this such a big deal to to say getting past that is becoming more like Jesus? That's a serious statement. Well, he has to remember who the author is here. James, little brother of Jesus. He's writing this through eyes who watched a man live this out. just think about Jesus for a second in his circle. He had a diverse circle, didn't he? just his disciples alone, uh, he had, yeah, yeah, he had fishermen. Um, he also had a tax collector, right? So he had the corporate numbers guy, CPA, made money from Rome. And then Jesus, and then Jesus had a zealot as a disciple who hated anybody who made money from Rome. So he had, he had blue-collar disciples. He had white-collar disciples. He had friends on both sides of the political spectrum. Try having friends that way. He had religious friends like Nicodemus, He had wealthy friends. Lazarus would have been wealthy. Then he had poor fisherman friends. He was loved by some of the religious, but he was also loved by some of the drunks. Jesus is, or James is writing this from eyes who watched his big brother live this out. He saw how people were fascinated by Jesus. All these different types of people meshing together. It's fascinating. It's a draw. It's beautiful and rare, but it's so special. Jesus' diverse group of friends was like this microcosm of the kingdom of God. And that has to be true of us. We have to get past this natural bent of like scoping out the pretty people or the people most like us. We've got to be more than that boring person with one type of friend. I used to be the um, I used to be the group's pastor at the bridge. I be careful how I say this. I'm not the group's pastor anymore because I was terrible at it. In in so we like Jordan does a fantastic job with it, does way better, but there, I just struggled so much. And, and, and I don't think this is the case anymore, I don't think. But when I would group people together, like I'd make a group, um, it was like picking teams for dodgeball, and it would just drive me nuts. So I'd make a group, and then all of a sudden I'd get these phone calls and these emails going like, well, we don't want to be with them, okay? Oh, they're not like us. We're couples, and they're single, so uh, put them in a singles group. They don't really jive with our vibe. You know, they're too old, so can you get some young? We're not that old, okay? Or, you know, what's their Enneagram number? I, I need people with, like, the right Enneagram number. Or, you know, I saw somebody in the lobby. They were really pretty. Could they be in my group? It, and it got to this point, and maybe this is why I'm not the group's pastor anymore, but it got to this point where I started emailing people back going, I'm not eHarmony, okay? <laughs> not eHarmony? Not matching everybody up based on their chemistry, okay? We're just putting people together, and we're being in community like Jesus told us to do not only does that grow us, it makes us more dimensional, but it begins to fascinate the outside world as the beauty of the kingdom of God is revealed in our relationships. So it begs the question, like, how are you doing with this? Does this concern you at all? Who are the people you gravitate to? How diverse is your circle? Like, this is such a big thought. Such a big thought, I have a few questions to just kind of help you evaluate yourself because self-evaluation can be very hard. So let me just throw a couple questions your way and see how you're doing with this. The first question is: do you bless people who can do nothing for you? Good business, I'm not saying it's wrong, but good business is you bless the right people because it's gonna help the business. Unfortunately, that carries over into how we often do relationships, even in the church. This is why verse 27 really opens up chapter two. This says, pure religion is pursuing orphans and widows. Two examples of people who can do nothing for the church. And then chapter two, James says, you're pursuing people who can do something for your image, who can give you something to rich. But what about those who can do nothing for you? True religion is going after them. And a lot of times what we can do is we can apply verse 27, you know, orphans and widows. We go, ah, well, I give to Compassion International. You know, I'm giving to orphans. And that's awesome. Yes, do that. My family supports Compassion International. We love that. But this this whole idea is bigger. Orphans is an example. He's talking about people who can do nothing for you. He's talking about the struggling family that you know. He's talking about the addict that you know. He's talking about the food stamp mom that you know. He's talking about the immigrant that's trying to learn English. He's talking about the single parent who could use some other couples around them as support. People who can't return the blessing. People who can do nothing for your image and sometimes they take away from your image. People who you struggle to relate with. Are they ever at your table? Do you ever post pictures with them? Do you ever invite them out? This is true religion. I have a, a childhood friend. Um, he's a guy with such a great heart. And he called me a while ago. He explained just some struggles that he's having. He got a new job, a really good job. And he's, it's in a bigger city, high-rise office. And he's got all these coworkers w- with these like penthouses and cars. And so he called me. He's like, Junior, it's like this big measuring fest all the time at work. So, and I feel guilty because I'm getting, like, sucked into all that. Everything is about, like, who you know and name dropping and the rat race and what you own and what you look like. It's, like, it's part of climbing the corporate ladder in my industry. And I just feel, Junior, that the more I get sucked into this, the further I am from Jesus. What do I do? And I'm glad we were studying James because they said, well, daily do something for someone who could never return the favor. So when you go out, with, when your guys are all going out after work, invite the janitor to come with. Like, what? Like, yeah, the guys are going to look at you weird to do it because everyone is pursuing who's who, you're you're paying for the janitor's meal. Or find the most awkward intern that your company has and just invest in them and buy them lunch. Don't compete to kiss the boss's butt, serve the receptionist. yeah, sure, go give parts of your paycheck to orphans. You should do that. But James's point is that they're all around you. So go after them, because that's true religion. One One of the most interesting verses to me is in Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews says that some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You ever read that? Fascinating thought to, to really think about that. Apparently it's possible that we rub shoulders with angels all the time. And sometimes I've, I've had experiences experience, but I've wondered. My guess is that if we ever entertain angels, they're not gonna come disguised like us, looking like us, easy to connect with. They're gonna look like a project. Do you ever pursue them? Crazy thought, Right? Some of the weird outcasts might just be angels. This is why I have a friend, Jordan. I'm just kidding; he's no angel. No, I make fun of him, but honestly, that Jordan does so well with this. Like, he's always tell me who he's going out with, and it's like always somebody from a different generation or a different class. And I've learned a lot just on this topic from Jordan living it out. But second question is, do you tie your friends to your image? And let me just answer this for you, okay? Yes, you do. Because we all do. This is just what we do. And it's not just on social media. We've been doing this forever. I mean, you think about uh, where did Jesus get the most slack? It's often from who we hung out with. The rabbis didn't like who he hung out with because of what it did to Jesus' image, therefore what it did to their image. The people that Jesus hung out with were liabilities to his image. This is just something that we do. It's in our sin nature, and we must recognize it, and we must make work against it. Part of our sanctification process is cutting this tie, and the only way to do that is to actively work against it. When my dad would drop me off for, at, at school uh, growing up, he'd always say the same thing to me every single day, and every time i just kind of go over my head. I didn't really care, but it was every single time, so it kind of stuck after a while. But every time i get out of the car, it's always the same time. I don't know if he planned it this way or what, but I'd get out of the car, just about to shut the door. The last words he would say to me is he'd say, hey, Junior, look for the person who needs a friend today. You know, because it's school, right? So, like, we're all walking into school hoping to be accepted and seen with the right crowd. Like, there were people that I was just dying to be friends with that, I, that didn't want me to be friends with them. I you was know, just all day working to be friends with them. And my dad would just spin that every morning. You know, he would hear me complain that I, I wasn't, you know, didn't have friends. He'd just spin that every morning. Forget you. F- forget the pursuit of the people that you want, the in crowd. Be the friend. Pursue somebody who needs to be pursued. So he'd say that to me every day. Problem was, the kids who needed friends, at least in my school, they, there was a reason they didn't have friends. I'm not trying to be mean. Let's be real for a second. Not all of them, but a lot were pretty weird. And they were hard to connect with. And they were needy. And some of them were just kind of mean because you talk to them and they think you're picking on them because they're just used to being picked on. And so not only was it hard to hang out with them, but as soon as I was seen with them, I was seen as them. So for a long time, I didn't pursue them. I was nice to them. I didn't bully them like some of the others did. I didn't pursue them though. Like pursuing them came at too much of a cost. This whole thought didn't click with me until I, I met my friend, Ian. Uh, Ian's on the left. This is from high school. Uh, the kid in the middle is, uh, was this unique kid that Ian and I both befriended our senior year. But um, toward the end of high school, I, I transferred schools. And now I was like the one without a friend. And Ian befriended me. And he was one of the coolest guys I've ever met. He was a model, which right off the bat, I was like, okay, I don't like this guy, you know, Mr. Zoolander. But but he wasn't vain, like he shopped at like Goodwill. He played guitar in a band, he sang. Everybody at school liked Ian, you couldn't not. He was just a nice guy all around. The the popular crowd wanted to be friends with with Ian. We became friends, I don't know how, but we became friends and, and he started coming to church with me and he became a Jesus follower. But the most fascinating thing about Ian was Ian's circle of friends. Again, he could have been with a popular group, no doubt, but Ian did something bigger. First time I hung out with him, he invited me over to his house. And I go over to his house, and his, his friend group was the most random group of kids. So I walk into his house, and in this kitchen were potheads, um, special need kids, band nerds, and goth kids that I was, like, afraid of. You know, first time hanging out. Just, like, shocking how diverse and weird this group was. And we all became this, like, random group of friends. We had a blast together. Like, we were so odd and so unique. I swear we had far more fun than the in-crowd groups. And that whole experience left this big mark on me. Like, I brought Ian to church and Ian met God, but in a way, Ian taught me what true religion really was. Like, the odd group of friends was like this, this picture of the kingdom of God. It was a group of misfits. Well, what's, that, what's that Bowling for Soup song? High school never ends. High school never ends. Just like the clicks and the the contests and the the comparisons and the popularity contests. it just stick with us wherever we go. James's point here is that high school ends in the church. High school ends here. This unique group in a world where high school never ends. It's a beautiful thing. But creating that takes serious effort. Intentionally doing things to cut ties between our friend group and our image. Pursuing people who can do nothing for us and then realizing how much they actually do for us, for, for our hearts. Like to boil this down, James is saying that our pursuit of people who can do nothing for us, it actually reveals how much we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. You go back to verse 27. And a lot have looked at this verse and gone, okay, well, all right, we got to pursue orphans and widows, like good works, right? Doing good works. I guess, sure, that's good works, but it's far, far deeper than that. This is true religion because... We pursue people who can do nothing for us because God pursued us who could do nothing for Him. This is it. We reflect the gospel in our relationships. The faces at our table, in our pictures, in our circles, they need to be this mini picture of the kingdom of God. I am so glad that God didn't just pursue people like Him. Heaven would be a lonely place. If God pursued people only like Him, none of us would be going. But God pursued you and me, who can do nothing for him. And the more that really sinks in, the more we can't help but just naturally turn around and pursue people who can do nothing for us. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.